Welcome to the podcast, Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Today I'd like to reflect on an interview between Jane Coaston and Russell Moore that appeared on the Ezra Klein Show on Tuesday, August 23, 2022. The title of the interview is Telling, Why the Evangelical Movement is in Disarray After Dobbs. You may have heard of Russell Moore. He was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and is now the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. In one sense, simply that combination already tells you something interesting about evangelicalism, but we'll get into that shortly. The interview begins with the assumption that evangelicalism is currently in chaos. Moore describes the situation as follows. I think the idea of evangelicalism as a monolithic sort of cultural and theological movement, that is what is in a kind of crisis right now. I'm not despondent about that because I think crises can often have very good results, but it clearly is the case. There's a great deal of tension across American church life right now and within evangelicalism. I think Moore is entirely correct about that. And he further complicates that point when he says the following. One of the problems we have right now is that most people who are evangelicals don't usually use the word evangelical in describing themselves except to pollsters. However, I wonder if the reality is that the divisions, which have been there all along, are simply becoming more obvious. One of the things that Moore doesn't address is that evangelicalism, as both a term and a movement, has never been fully clear. Probably the simplest way to tell the story of how evangelicalism came into existence is to point out that it started as a reaction to late 19th century liberal theology and biblical scholarship. Scholars, particularly in Germany, were arguing that ideas such as the virgin birth of Jesus and his resurrection were not believable. To respond to these concerns, in 1915, a group of businessmen decided to fund the publication of a series of pamphlets known as The Fundamentals. By 1920, the movement had been labeled Fundamentalism. Fundamentalists chugged along for a while, but eventually they came to realize that the name had far too many negative associations, and they wanted something more positive. As the old saw has it, fundamentalism is no fun, all damn and no mental. In 1957, the editor of Christianity Today, Carl F.H. Henry, declared that the controversy that led to the name of fundamentalism was dead. But the reality was only that the name was dead. And of course, there were those who were more than happy to retain the name fundamentalist, notably such people as Bob Jones of Bob Jones University and Jerry Falwell Sr., Let me illustrate this point. During the time I was a high school student, we lived in Dallas, where my father taught at an evangelical seminary. We attended an independent Bible church, which was clearly evangelical in nature. As someone bored with high school, I graduated a semester early and happened to get a job as a DJ at the local Christian radio station, which was under the general umbrella of the First Baptist Church of Dallas where the famed W.A. Criswell held forth every Sunday. While at least conservative Southern Baptists likely thought that much of evangelicalism was similar in terms of Christian beliefs, the reality was that the Southern Baptist and evangelical worlds 
were different worlds that didn't have much overlap. I was more amused than angered by the fact that my position was about 35 hours per week, just short of full time. That was because I didn't attend First Baptist and was perceived as somehow like Baptists, but not quite the same. What I didn't know back then, and frankly couldn't have imagined, was that conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention were about to take on their liberal counterparts. Those calling for reform referred to it as the conservative insurgents. The so-called liberals called it the fundamentalist takeover. The conservatives, or fundamentalist, used evangelical institutions, particularly where I taught, as their model for reforming Southern Baptist institutions. In practice, it meant that the moderates and liberals were ousted from their positions at Southern Baptist seminaries. One of my close friends was among those who lost their jobs. Exactly why my friend was targeted as a liberal is still unclear to me, though it's probably helpful here to explain the use of the term liberal, well, at least as well as it can be explained. Growing up, it was clear to me that liberal was bad, and the term was used to denounce quite a lot of things. But it has never been clear to me what the term really means. As far as I can tell, the word was used against anyone who didn't agree with the evangelical party line. Of course, even defining the party line has never been easy. Historically, for instance, Southern Baptists and Evangelicals were separate entities that had different views on various things. And that point only begins to get at the significant differences among evangelicals. The word liberal seemed to me then, and likewise seems to me now, to mean something like the people we don't like. In terms of political parties, it was clear that the Democrats were bad. Though if you had asked me what made them bad, I couldn't have told you exactly. I mentioned in the previous podcast that I have always asked a lot of questions. A good deal of those questions were designed to figure out what liberal actually meant and why evangelicals were so opposed to liberals. Theologically, the clearest meaning of the term liberal meant those people who called themselves Christians but didn't believe in such crucial doctrines as the inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth, and the literal resurrection of Jesus. But over time, I came to realize that this word was applied so randomly that even people who didn't have exactly the same views on such matters were somehow bad, even when the actual differences weren't all that significant. Even back in the good old days, when evangelicals were supposedly united, I was alarmed and dismayed to hear an evangelical leader say that when he would visit a different evangelical institution, his first question was about, what they disagreed on. My own tendency in meeting people is to find as many points of agreement and connection as possible. But I think that leader's continual search for disagreement has been all too much a part of evangelicalism. When I would hear details over church splits, I was often shocked that congregations could decide to part ways over the color of the carpeting. But this idea of looking for things that divide has long been part of the fundamentalist mentality. As I mentioned, evangelicals are more or less fundamentalists who wanted to be called something more respectable. 
A key component of Christian fundamentalist thinking is that the true Christian needs to be separate from the world. This explains why fundamentalists or evangelicals needed to found their own colleges, radio stations, Bible institutes, and parachurch organizations, such as what used to be called Campus Crusade, which was about evangelism and is now called Crew, and focus on the family, which has long been a source of disinformation, such as the claim back in 2008 that Obama was out to destroy churches and turn everyone gay. That latter point actually comes up in the interview with Moore. If you're hearing this for the first time, it might sound crazy to you, because, of course, it is crazy. But I remember an evangelical friend of mine saying this, not the gay part, but the destroy the churches part. When she said this to me, I simply didn't know what to say and had to find a way to excuse myself from the conversation. Since we've already headed into the realm of doctrine, I'd like to examine a distinction Moore makes between young evangelicals in days past and those of today. He says, When someone says to me I'm thinking about walking away, it's usually a different conversation than it would have been ten years ago. It would have been with a younger person saying, I just can't believe the supernatural stuff that we believe anymore. Or, I really think the moral ideas of the church are too strict and too judgmental, and I want to walk away. Now it's almost the reverse, almost directly the reverse. It's people who are saying, I don't think the church believes what it says it believes, and what it's taught me, or at least I fear that it doesn't. It's probably safe to say that I'm not talking to the same people Moore is talking to, but in my own experience, the distinction he makes is only marginally correct and more a matter of emphasis. I've already mentioned that defining evangelicalism is really difficult, but part of what makes it difficult is that evangelicals themselves are very often not exactly clear what separates them from other Christians. I mentioned the doctrine of inerrancy, and this, I think, is a useful example. Almost every student I've encountered over the years has had only the vaguest idea of what inerrancy even means. In almost all cases, when I explained the doctrine to them, the look on their faces was one of shock and surprise. Indeed, it's one of those things that one needs to study quite a bit, even to understand how it differs from the Roman Catholic affirmation of the infallibility of the Bible. Inerrancy isn't the belief that the Bible that we currently have is free from error. It's clear that scribes copying the scriptures by hand made mistakes. There are ample examples of that. But inerrancy isn't about the scriptures that we have. Instead, it's the claim that the original manuscripts are without error. You might ask, where are those original manuscripts? The answer is, we don't have them. All we have at this point are copies of copies. Even if we were to discover the original manuscripts hidden in some cave, I can't think of any way that anyone could decide that these are the originals. But even though we don't have them, evangelicals believe that those original manuscripts were without error. As you can plainly see, this isn't the kind of claim that can be proven or disproven, since we're talking about manuscripts that none of us has access to. You either believe it or you don't. And if you were to say, well, I suspect that those original manuscripts contained errors, 
You couldn't prove that either. But there's a further wrinkle here. The Roman Catholic doctrine of infallibility of the Bible only concerns what the Bible teaches about Christian beliefs. In contrast, inerrancy as a belief entails the idea that the Bible is accurate about everything that it speaks about, whether theological, scientific, geographical, historical, etc. The problem with such a belief is that one is forced to explain away many things found in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, or what Christians call the Old and New Testaments. Some of these things are relatively unimportant, such as different books of the Hebrew Bible describing the same battle. One book says that 15,000 people died, another says 20,000 people died. To us, who are used to a great deal of exactitude on many things, that just seems like an error. But it's easy to say that for the ancient Hebrews, the exact count wasn't all that important. It just meant a whole lot. Or one can say that these kinds of cases are like reports that 300,000 people went to see the fireworks in some city. No one expects that to be an exact figure. There are, of course, other things that are more problematic. One doesn't have to spend too much time reading the different Gospels to realize they don't agree on various things or that Matthew systematically misquotes from the Hebrew Bible in order to make certain points. Regarding that misquoting, one can simply say that the author was inspired by God to use these quotes in a new way. And I don't think that's entirely unplausible. However, perhaps you've spotted what the real problem is. It's very difficult to determine what counts as an error. Is it a problem that Matthew's Gospel says that Jesus instructed two disciples to go and get two donkeys, whereas Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus instructed them to get a colt? For someone who believes that the text is inerrant, the explanation can be as simple as, each of them told part of the story. The disciples were actually asked to get both two donkeys and a colt. Problem solved. Of course, one could also simply say that in the original manuscripts, one of these accounts is true and the other false, but somehow in getting copied by scribes, an error crept in. As I say, the problem remains, what counts as an error? While we're on the subject, it's probably worth mentioning how evangelicals interpret scripture. Their claim, made in very clear and certain terms, is that they take the Bible literally, except, of course, when they don't. Thus, Roman Catholics make a big point about the fact that Jesus says, this is my body, when he breaks the bread at the Last Supper. Evangelicals have what I have long termed a Bill Clinton problem regarding the term is. They simply interpret this as metaphorical language. But then, what happens to literalism? Now, it's important to note that all branches of Christianity, or if you'd prefer, all denominations of Christianity, have differing ideas about what's supposed to be literal and what's not. There's nothing like a consensus. So there are evangelicals who do not read the creation accounts. Yes, there are actually two accounts in Genesis, and they do not agree. There are evangelicals who do not read those literally. Often the various days are interpreted as eras or long periods of time. So evangelicals are not united in terms of how they interpret the creation accounts, which, by the way, have many similarities to creation accounts from other ancient Mesopotamian religions. Or, to use a different example, 
Most liberal scholars think that the book of Jonah, in which Jonah is swallowed by a whale and is there for three nights and three days, is a comedy, a work of fiction designed not to be literally true, but to figuratively or metaphorically true in the sense that it has a lesson to teach. Evangelicals generally reject such an interpretation, which they would describe as having a low view of Scripture. But it's hard to see why interpreting Jonah as a funny story designed to teach something important is somehow bad or unfaithful to Scripture. But let's stop here and go back to the second part of the quote, the part about young people thinking that evangelicals don't really believe what they say they believe. I think there are two ways of interpreting this criticism. One is that evangelicals have long held that personal morality, how one lives one's life, is paramount. If anything, evangelicals have made such a big deal about being perfect that a real problem among evangelicals is that they're forced to pretend as if they're really better than they are. In other words, there is a significant difference between what evangelicals hold up as their ideals and how they actually live. As far back as I can remember, this has always been a huge problem in the evangelical world. Although evangelicals take the doctrine of sin very seriously in one sense, in another sense, they tend to think it is someone else's problem. We're not that way. It's those other people. Moore points this out in regard to divorce. When I was growing up, I don't think I even knew any evangelicals who were divorced. But that changed over time, and Moore notes that such a change required accommodation. And here I'm quoting him. The more common divorce became in American life, the less you had any moral component about it preached, and the more you had a therapeutic component about it preached. And it's because you're looking at people in front of you. So evangelicals have backed off their rhetoric against divorce. Or, to take a different example, back when revelations about abuse by Catholic priests started coming out, evangelicals proclaimed very proudly and loudly that they didn't have that problem. But then the revelations about abuse among evangelicals and, for that matter, Southern Baptists started coming out, and suddenly evangelicals realized that their own leaders were not much more exemplary than those of other Christian groups. Perhaps the example that is most telling is that while evangelicals are generally against abortion, many evangelicals get abortions when faced with an unplanned pregnancy. Jane Coaston, the interviewer, brings up this point toward the end of the interview. Here's what she says. There was an article I read years ago by someone who was working in an abortion clinic and who said, most of my patients are not pro-choice. They're not people who have concluded the fetus is not a person and therefore this is morally neutral. They said most of the people in the waiting room at the clinic were evangelical Christians. They were saying, I know this is wrong and God will just have to forgive me. Or Catholic Christians who are saying, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to go to confession and just hope that God will forgive me. Now, it's one thing to hold an ideal. It's another thing to live out that ideal. Coaston goes on to say, most people are pro-life with three exceptions, rape, incest, and my situation. So those who are loudly condemning abortion in the abstract are not necessarily against it when it becomes personal. By the way, I will return to the subject of abortion evangelicals in a later podcast.
we tend to assume that being anti-abortion has always been the default evangelical stance, but that's simply not true. As I said, that's one way of thinking about Moore's claim that young evangelicals doubt that evangelicals live the way they say they live. However, I think there's something else here. One of the other claims Moore makes is the following. A pastor who, if he talks about responsibility for racial reconciliation and justice from the book of Galatians or the book of Ephesians, is going to have someone saying, you're a critical race theorist. I suspect that no one listening to that is going to be surprised, at least about the critical race theory bit. Let me quickly say that I think all the talk about critical race theory is a red herring. There is no evidence that school children are being taught critical race theory. In other words, it's a made-up phenomenon, though more on that in another podcast. But there's something more passes right by, namely the reality is that evangelicals have largely obscured the fact that Jesus talks about social justice almost constantly. Put personally, I don't remember a single sermon in all of the years growing up about Jesus and the poor. In other words, even back in the day, evangelicals tried to skirt around those passages in Galatians and Ephesians that dealt with social issues like poverty, injustice, and racism. As Moore puts it in the interview, I've had pastors tell me that they have just parenthetically mention the Sermon on the Mount and have had church members say, where did you get those liberal talking points? Let's get this straight. Pastors talking to evangelicals mention what are considered to be among Jesus' most important sayings, and those evangelicals don't even know that the pastor is simply quoting Jesus? It blows one's mind to think that people who claim to take the Bible seriously and say they read it literally don't even know what Jesus says. But what more goes on to say is even more frightening. When the pastor says, I'm just quoting Jesus, often members of a congregation will respond, and again I'm quoting more, well, that was fine and good in other times, but not in times like these. And then more continues. So that kind of reaction, even among people who kind of, at a surface level, hold onto the idea of Christianity, is just not what Christianity is. That statement is absolutely remarkable. When evangelicals are confronted with what Jesus says, their response is that this isn't what Christianity is about, or Jesus was wrong. But then if Christianity isn't about what Jesus says, what is it about? How is it possible that people could consider themselves to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, but simply reject what he says? I do want to make a small point here that I think is helpful in putting such a reaction in context. Although evangelicals claim that liberal denominations, that is, mainline denominations, don't preach the gospel, the reality is actually more the reverse. One of the things I discovered when I started attending an Episcopal church in college was that Episcopal services were much more connected to what Jesus says. In a typical Sunday morning service in the Episcopal church, there's an Old Testament reading, then usually a recitation of a psalm by the congregation, and then the gospel lesson. While the preacher is allowed to choose from any of the texts for that day, 
the vast majority of sermons focus on the gospel reading. Let me put this in a slightly different way. What most amazed me when I started attending an Episcopal church was how much more of the Bible was part of the service in comparison to the Bible church that I had attended while in high school. And it was also the case that the principal emphasis in the Episcopal church was on what Jesus says. People in an Episcopal church would never complain about the Sermon on the Mount as being liberal because they've actually read and heard extensive sermons on such texts. This is what I mean when I say that evangelicals do not take Jesus seriously enough. They do not know what Jesus says, apart from a few carefully chosen bits. And here's something else to provide evidence for that point. Around the time I went to college, I read Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. What stunned me was how little of the passages of the Gospels that Sider cites were taken seriously by evangelicals. It wasn't that evangelicals were talking a good game about the poor and just not living up to what they said. Instead, these passages were largely ignored. I mentioned Carl Henry earlier. In 1947, he published a book titled The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism that lamented the fact that fundamentalists and then evangelicals had largely ignored the plight of the poor and societal problems. One would like to think that in the time since 1947, evangelicals have changed. To be sure, evangelicals today have far more interest in what is sometimes called social justice. But these concerns are not strongly shared by evangelicals in general, who were almost completely against American attempts at desegregation in the 1950s and 60s. I don't want to go into details on this point in today's podcast, simply because I'd like to devote much more attention to this development. But the simple story is that abortion only became a cause for evangelicals because it was considered by various leaders, such as Jerry Falwell Sr. and Paul Weyrich, as a good rallying point. The claim that evangelicals are concerned about human life is, at best, an exaggeration. As we noted earlier, Moore claims that 10 years ago, evangelical students had problems with the supernatural stuff in Christianity. But now, according to him, it's almost the reverse, almost directly the reverse, that's what he says. Again, he and I are likely not talking to the same evangelical students. But even so, I think he's probably wrong. It's not that their questions regarding the virgin birth, the resurrection, the idea of heaven and hell have gone away. Those problems clearly remain. However, those problems are simply not as obvious as the ways in which evangelicals have failed to live up to the gospel. Actually, let me restate that. It's not just that evangelicals have not lived up to the gospel. It's also that their version of the gospel is so at odds with what Jesus actually teaches. I think back to a young evangelical I knew who, when confronted with what Jesus teaches, was stunned. Like me growing up, he had never heard his pastor preach on Jesus' teachings regarding the poor. But there was something else much more troubling. When he brought Jesus' teachings on the poor to the attention of his parents, they simply denied that what Jesus had to say on that point was important. 
And I think those parents were simply giving him the evangelical party line. So the whole critical race theory complaint is only the latest way in which evangelicals have managed to avoid facing what Jesus says. Thus, even 10 years ago, evangelical students were already faced with the problem that what they were being taught simply didn't reflect what Jesus had said. In the next podcast, I'm going to look at the various things that Jesus says that go almost completely unnoticed by evangelicals. Yes, evangelicals claim that they read the Bible literally, except, as I pointed out before, when it proves inconvenient. Moore suggests, though he does not state it in clear and certain terms, that young evangelicals found it highly hypocritical for evangelicals to support someone like Donald Trump. I'm going to assume that the disconnect between what evangelicals teach and the way Trump has operated is already clear in everyone's mind. The usual way of explaining the problem is that suddenly evangelicals were supporting someone whose life went against virtually everything that they had always taught. Well, that's not false. The reality is more complicated. In her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Cobes Dumez points out that rather than being a huge exception, the embrace of Trump by evangelicals was long preceded by their love for strong leaders who weren't always exemplary in terms of how they lived. She happens to mention Wayne Grudem, someone that I've met and who once upon a time was a colleague of my father. Grudem came out in 2016 not merely in favor of Trump, but he insisted that rather than simply being the lesser of two evils, Trump was in fact, and here I'm quoting, a morally good choice. Let me quote a bit more from Grudem, writing back in 2016 before the presidential election. The most likely result of not voting for Trump is that we'll be abandoning thousands of unborn babies who will be put to death under Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court. Thousands of Christians who will be excluded from their lifelong occupations because they won't affirm same-sex marriage. Thousands of the poor who will never again be able to find high-paying jobs in an economy crushed by government hostility toward business. Thousands of inner-city children who will never be able to get a good education. Thousands of the sick and elderly who will never get adequate medical treatment with the government as the nation's only health care provider. Thousands of people who will be killed by an unchecked ISIS. And millions of Jews in Israel who will find themselves alone and surrounded by hostile enemies. And we will be contributing to a permanent loss of the American system of government due to a final victory of unaccountable judicial tyranny. The point of that long rant was that voting for Hillary Clinton would have the results he did details. I've never been a big fan of Hillary Clinton, but such talk amounts simply to slander. Grudem claims that should she be elected, thousands of inner-city children will never be able to get a good education. Thousands of the sick and elderly will never get adequate medical treatment. Even with the most charitable hermeneutic imaginable, one must conclude that such charges were not backed by any evidence whatsoever. The idea that somehow inner-city children and the sick and elderly would get better treatment were Trump-elected seemed implausible then, and the actual reality can hardly be construed to argue that thanks to Trump, those people are all now doing better. 
As to judicial tyranny, Trump appears to have accomplished that quite well. While there are many other aspects of the interview with Moore worthy of comment, I want to conclude by considering two remarks he makes regarding the identity of evangelicals. The first is the point that there's been a shift in terms of who identifies as evangelical. The interviewer, Jane Coston, says the following. I think it's really interesting that increasing numbers of white Trump supporters started identifying as evangelicals during his presidency, even though many of them didn't actually attend church. To this, Moore responds as follows. I think that what has happened is that we've had a morphing of cultural Christianity. There's always been a kind of nominal cultural Christianity, including within evangelicalism, because it was so strange in many places in the Bible Belt not to belong to a church. But then he goes on to say something that is even more disturbing. A friend of Moore's from his college days used to argue with him, and here again I'm quoting, about the existence of God over and over and over again. And then he just says one day over coffee, can you recommend a good Southern Baptist church for me to join, but one that's not too Southern Baptisty? And I stopped and said, when, when did you become a Christian? And he said, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff, but I want to run for office, and I can't run for office, I'm not part of a church, and there are more Southern Baptists in my area than anything else. Well, Moore goes on to admit that nominal Christianity has always existed, he seems to think it has gotten worse. Perhaps he's right about that. Perhaps more people are inaccurately identifying as evangelicals than before. Yet it's interesting that both Colston and Moore use the marker of attending church as indicating whether someone is really an evangelical. There are many things one could say in response. One is simply that in the United States, church-going is still comparatively common, in contrast to, say, Europe. The difficulty, though, is that such a marker may not mean all that much. When I was growing up, I was led to believe that people who went to mainline churches were largely just playing church. I think of my relatives in Canada who viewed the Canadian and Anglican churches just as social club. Or I think of the evangelicals I knew when we lived in Dallas who just dismissed all Southern Baptists as cultural Christians, people who went to church each Sunday but didn't live out their faith the rest of the week. Notice how I've just shifted the perspective from those who don't go to church but identify as evangelical to those who do go to church and identify as Southern Baptist. My point in doing so is to suggest that attending church may not really tell us all that much about what people actually believe. The idea that those who attend mainline churches are fake Christians is just as problematic as the idea that those who attend evangelical churches are real Christians. Church attendance may tell us something, but it doesn't tell us that much. It certainly doesn't mean that someone is fully committed to following Jesus. And the fact that many evangelicals are ignorant of what Jesus actually says tells us far more than their church attendance does. The other point worth mentioning is Moore's speaking about white evangelical churches versus black evangelical churches. It is a heartwarming thought that there are both black and white evangelical churches, but it's a thought that has no basis in reality. 
Evangelicalism is, and always has been, a white phenomenon. Yes, there are some people of color at many evangelical churches and institutions, but the reality is that very few black churches, even ones that might have similar beliefs, identify as evangelical. I remember meeting an African-American theologian, and somewhere in the midst of our conversation, she said to me, I never knew that white evangelicals had so many theological beliefs in common with African-American Christians. Huh? That comment comes from someone trained in theology with a PhD, but she still found it surprising that many of her Christian beliefs were shared by evangelicals. Here's my point. Evangelicalism is very strongly a white movement. Just considering its history makes that clear. No doubt there are people of color who identify as evangelical and people of color who are evangelical pastors. But the reality is that we don't really need the modifier white in connection with the noun evangelical. Evangelical just pretty well means white. As I mentioned before, the move to desegregate American society proved a point around which evangelicals could rally. While one can always point to those in evangelical circles who denounce segregation, there were relatively few of them, and their voices are remembered precisely because they were so out of step with the movement in general. Let me close by saying that these past years, particularly the years leading up to Trump and those in the wake of Trump, have been ones in which evangelicals have shown their true colors. Perhaps 10 years ago, a young evangelical might have wondered if evangelicals really believe what they say they believe. But now, one doesn't really need to do as much wondering. In response to the fact that evangelicals have been such faithful supporters of Trump, Koshin makes reference to what Jesus says about prophets. You will know them by their fruits. Are evangelicals faithful followers of Jesus' teachings? I can't answer that question for you. You'll have to answer it yourself. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to Unbecoming. I hope you'll join me next time.